I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ruth in your Old Testament, sandwiched in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. My aim in the month of July is to preach through this whole book, one chapter each Sunday. And I think you could make it a very profitable experience for yourself, for renewal and for encouragement if you read through the whole book once a week. It'll take you 25 minutes at a leisurely pace. And I think if you did that, then July and this book would sort of stand out in your uh, life for many years to come, probably, as a time in which you learn something very, very stabilizing for your faith. It's a story that shows how God moves in a mysterious way. And that hymn that we're going to close with today is going to be a theme note all through the month so that I hope that hymn rings with this book and this month for many years to come in your life. It's a story for people who wonder where God is when there are no dreams and no visions and no prophets. It's a story for people who wonder where God is when tragedy after tragedy attacks your faith. It's a story for people who wonder whether there is any point in being a person of integrity in the hardest of all times, when it looks like you may as well join the crowd and throw away your integrity. And it's a story for people who can't imagine that anything great could ever come out of your ordinary life of faith. And I think it's very refreshing and a very encouraging book, and I want us to be refreshed and encouraged in the hot month of July at Bethlehem Baptist Church. So let's read Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was bereft of her two sons and her husband. Then she started with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find a home, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No! We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that I may become that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following you. But where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has afflicted me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Verse 1 says that the story took place during the time of the judges. That's a period of time extending from the death of Joshua, who had brought the people into the promised land, you remember, up to Samuel, who was the last judge and the first prophet who then anointed kings in Israel. A time of about 400 years, about 1500 to 1100 B.C., The book of Judges in our English Bible comes just before the book of Ruth. And if you let your eyes go up to the last verse of the book of Judges, you can hear a theme statement about the kind of time it was. The time of the Judges, the time in which this story took place. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a very, very dark time. In Israel, you remember the sequence of activities that people would sin and rebel against God. God would send enemies against the people. The people would cry out to God, help us in his mercy. God would send a judge. The judge would defeat the enemies. And then in 80 years or so, it would start all over again. Rebellion, plead for mercy, mercy, deliverance, rebellion, right on through for 400 years. It was a very dark time in Israel. And what this little book of Ruth does is give us a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the worst of times in Israel. Look at the last verse of the book of Ruth. We need to jump ahead just to get the overview of where this book is going. Ruth is going to return with Naomi. A kinsman of Naomi, Boaz, is going to marry her. 
And the child born to them is going to be called Obed. And this verse says, Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David. In other words, here in the darkest of all times, while it looks like all of God's purposes for righteousness and peace and glory in Israel are being frustrated, God is quietly at work in one family to prepare a grandfather for the greatest king in Israel and the ancestor of the Messiah. So if you feel like God is far from you, if you feel like his hand has crashed down on you with bitterness, the message of the book of Ruth is going to be try to stay alert to the little rays of light that show that God is plotting for your glory in the hardest of times. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I think that's the book or the message of the book of of Ruth. And so let's see how this inspired, unknown writer teaches us this lesson. Verses 1 to 5. The point of verses 1 to 5 is to uncover for us the misery of Naomi. Look at it. Verse 1, a famine has driven them from the land. At least it has caused them to think they should be driven from the land. Naomi knows good and well where famines come from. God makes famines, nobody else. Leviticus 26 says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will give you rains and their season and the land shall yield its increase. God gives rains. God withholds rains. When a famine strikes Judah, it is the hand of the Lord during the time of the judges. Then there is the decision to go to Moab. The whole family sets out, and that's very risky business. God had called his people to be separate from the surrounding lands and their gods, And when they get there, the first thing that happens is that Elimelech dies. And what is Naomi to feel but that the hand of God has dealt her another blow? They shouldn't have gone, she must have felt to herself. Thirdly, her sons marry pagan Moabites. And they die. Ten years later, childless. Famine, a move to a pagan land, death of her husband, marriage to pagan women, and the death of her sons. Now what? The stage has been set. She has been dealt bitter blows by the Almighty. Verse 6, Naomi gets word that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. And so she decides to return. And evidently, Orpha and Ruth go at least partway with her, perhaps to the border. And she turns, in verse 8, 
And between verses 8 and 13, does her best to persuade them not to go along. Go back home is the word. And I've asked myself the question in trying to think through this chapter, why the writer devotes such an extended unit to this effort on Naomi's part to talk Ruth and Orpha out of going back to Israel. And I see three possible reasons. The first one is that these verses emphasize the misery of Naomi. Look at verse 11. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. In other words, if you follow me, if you are intent on being faithful to the family line, nothing lies before you. I've got no sons. I can't marry and raise up sons for you to marry and continue the line. All that remains for you then is widowhood and childlessness till we both die. Go home. Marry a Moabite man. Verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, or more bitter to me than you, that the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So her final argument is, don't come with me. God is against me. Why accompany me? I'm jinxed. The second reason I think the writer devotes time to these verses 8 to 13 is to prepare us for a custom in Israel that is going to make all the difference in the world in the next chapters. It's going to turn everything around. And the custom is this. In Israel, if a husband died, leaving no children for his name to be carried on, it was the expected duty of his unmarried brothers or some near kinsman to marry his widow and raise up children to continue the family line. And that's what Naomi has in mind here when she says, I don't have any sons for you. And even if I married this very day, you wouldn't wait around until all those sons grew up. And so we're prepared in a very sensitive way for a custom which in the later part of the book is going to revolutionize Naomi's condition and Ruth's. Evidently, I'm guessing here, but see if you don't think this has something going for it. Evidently, Naomi has forgotten about Boaz. You see, Boaz is a kinsman. He is the one who's going to step in and perform this act. But she doesn't say that. She just says, I don't have anybody. Don't come with me. From which I infer a lesson. Isn't it true in your own experience that when you have decided that God is against you, you always exaggerate your hopelessness. And you are blind, usually, to the rays of sunlight that are beginning to peep in among all these big dark clouds over your head. It was God who had broken the famine and opened the door for Naomi to return to her homeland. It was God who had preserved the kinsman Boaz and not let him marry another so that the name could go on. It was God who is going to constrain Ruth to bind herself for Naomi's sake to be with her. And yet Naomi 
She couldn't see any of this. She was so embittered by this hard providence of God that she couldn't see the mercy breaking through. And there's a third reason that I think the writer wrote these verses 8 to 13. And it's to show the amazingness of Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Verse 14 says that Orpha kissed Naomi goodbye and Ruth clung to her. And then in verse 15, Naomi tries to push Ruth off of her. Go back. And Ruth will not be deterred from binding herself to her mother-in-law who has been made destitute by the loss of her husband and sons. Naomi had painted the bleakest future possible, right? For Orpha and Ruth. Orpha went away and Ruth took Naomi's hand and walked right into the dark future together with her. And her words are beautiful. They're very famous out of this book. Verses 16 and 17. And treat me not to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if even death parts me from you. The more you ponder those words, the more amazing they become for several reasons. For example, they mean that Ruth is leaving her own family and her own land. They mean that she is accepting widowhood and childlessness for the rest of her life. She doesn't know anything about Boaz. And if she were to marry another man outside the line, she would not be able to keep her vow. To Naomi. She's 25 years old, maybe 30 at the most, since it's been 10 years since her husband died, and no doubt she married somewhere between 15 and 20. Also, it means that she is going to an unknown land, a new people, a new language. She's not afraid to go. And it means a commitment to Naomi more radical than marriage. I'm going to do four weddings in the next three weeks. And not one of them is going to say, where you die, I will die. They're going to say, till death do us part. Like they should. Naomi said, if you die, I will not go back. I will stay and I will die and I will be buried with you in your tomb. This is an amazing commitment from a young woman, Moabitess, who doesn't know anything about the land of Israel. But the most amazing thing is yet to come. Your God will be my God. Now, here's why that's amazing. What did she know about Naomi's God from Naomi? Verse 13. The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Go back, Ruth. And Ruth says, I want your God. 
Now, I don't know why she said that. Unless maybe Chilion, her husband, in those ten years, had lived and spoken in such a way about the glory of the God of Israel, his power at the Red Sea, his future for the people, his love for his chosen, the apple of his eye, that she had been converted perhaps long ago and now would not surrender the God of Naomi, no matter what that God had done in Naomi's life. Somehow or other, Ruth had come to trust the God of Naomi and was going with her in all her bitter experiences. I think this is a picture of the ideal woman in the Old Testament. Four things characterize the ideal woman. Faith in God that goes beyond and sees beyond the present bitter experiences with God. Freedom, secondly, from securities and comforts of home and family and this life. Third, courage to venture into the unknown and into the strange. And fourth, radical commitment in the relationships that God has appointed. And oh, that Bethlehem might be a place that breeds that kind of woman. So Ruth and Naomi returned together, verse 19, to Judah, to Bethlehem, and the whole town is excited, turns out, recognizes Naomi, is this Naomi? And she says, do not call me Naomi. That is pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara, bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has afflicted me or testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. What do you make of Naomi's theology? I would take Naomi's theology any day over the contemporary, romantic, superficial, sentimental view of God in so many of our paperbacks and magazines when people are discussing the tragedies in their lives. Naomi was absolutely sure of three things. God exists. God is the Almighty And God has afflicted me. Amen. Praise God for Naomi's confidence and theology. The problem with Naomi is that she's forgotten the story of Joseph. Which all the Israelites used to tell from Genesis. Joseph went into a foreign land too. He was sold as a slave. Joseph was framed by an adulteress, put in the deepest dungeon of an Egyptian prison. He had every right to say, the hand of the Lord is bitter against me. And he kept faith. And the lesson of his story resounded throughout Israel. And it was stated so clearly in Genesis 50, verse 20, where he said to his brothers, as for you, You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And Naomi's just forgotten that. And I don't blame her. 
We must be patient with people who receive blow after blow after blow in this life. It is not easy to keep our eyes open to such truth. She needs help. We need patience. There is more to come. She needs to remember that it was God who brought this famine to an end. And there is a very sensitive and delicate touch of our writer. This writer, by the way, is a craftsman as well as a theologian. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That's very sweet. That verse looks in two directions with gospel. It looks back and says, God has closed off the famine. He has welcomed you home. And it looks forward because if Naomi could just know what's going to happen in that barley field next Sunday, she would feel so different. But Naomi needs to see another thing besides the end of the famine. She needs to see Ruth. Ruth is an amazing gift. Ruth is an amazing blessing. But look at verse 21. Here stands Naomi with Ruth at her side, saying, The Lord has brought me back empty. Not so, Naomi. Open your eyes to Ruth. What would she say? If she could see just a few weeks into the future that this woman, Ruth, is going to bear her a man-child. And that this man-child is going to be the one who gives birth ultimately to the greatest king Israel has known, who will be the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord of the universe. And that all of this has happened to draw Naomi and Ruth into the heritage of the king of kings. What would she say? I think she would say, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. So let me close with four lessons that we've seen, I think, to sum up. First lesson, God the Almighty reigns in all the affairs of men. He rules nations and he rules families. God's providence extends from the United States Congress to your kitchen. Let's be like the women of faith in the Old Testament. Whatever else they doubted, they did not doubt that God was utterly and intimately involved with every part of their lives and none could stay his hand. He brings rain. He was withholds rain. He gives spouses. He takes spouses. In him we live and move and have our being. Nothing, not a toothpick, not the Taj Mahal can be understood in life apart from God. There must be in the women and the men of Bethlehem a God saturation. No compartmentalizing. He must shoot through every radius of your lives if you want to be like the biblical women of faith. He is the all-encompassing, all-pervading reality. Naomi is right. We should join her in this conviction. 
God the Almighty reigns in the affairs of men, from the national to the personal. Second truth. God's providence sometimes is very, very hard. I don't think Naomi had much choice but to feel that she had been dealt bitter blows by God. But perhaps someone will say, that's just because Naomi sinned by going to Moab. And it was sin when her sons married Moabite women. Well, I'm not sure. The author doesn't point that out. And we do know from other texts in the Old Testament, for example, Psalm 34 and 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Suppose that it was owing to sin that God dealt her these blows. That makes the story doubly encouraging. Because if it was sin that brought Ruth into the family, isn't it doubly astonishing that God was at work to make her the ancestor of the Messiah? Don't ever think that the sin in your past means there is no hope for your future. Third lesson. Even though the providence of God is sometimes very hard, in all his works, he is purposing your happiness and your good. Who would have imagined that in the darkest and worst of all times, the times of the judges, God was quietly moving in a solitary family to prepare the way for King David and for Jesus Christ? But not only that. That's a big national level, and you might say, well, my own personal life doesn't relate. But by the end of this story, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi are going to be dancing for joy because of what God has done in their lives personally. And if anything this summer has fallen in upon you to make your future look hopeless, learn from Ruth. That God is right now plotting your glory. Trust him for it. And finally, here's the last lesson. If we are a people like that at Bethlehem, if we are confident that he is almighty, that sometimes his providences are hard, and that in those providences, nevertheless, he is plotting for our happiness and our glory, We will be a people like Ruth who who are remarkably free. Free to say farewell to mother and father and homeland. Free to venture out in brand new unknown things. Free to commit ourselves to new tasks with very confident allegiance. Or perhaps for some of you, free and strong and courageous to remain in the commitments that you have made. So the book of Ruth, like all the other scripture, as Paul says in Romans 15, 4, is written for our encouragement that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, 
Let's do this together to close. Let's reaffirm and rededicate ourselves to confidence in that kind of God with that kind of hope for strength and freedom this week by singing number 603, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. 603, and shall we stand as we sing? Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing in order that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. And all God's people said, Amen.